everybody, welcome to episode 18 of Thief's Monthly Movie Loot. In this episode, I will be discussing what I saw in the second half of July. Like in the first half, there will be a bunch of children and animated films since we've been testing Disney+, Plus. but there's also an equal dose of films for grown-ups. In total, there are 9 films to talk about, so let's hit it! A film with world in its title. This category comes because of World Population Day, which was on July 11, and for it I saw Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. This is one that many have recommended through the years, but for some reason I had been postponing. So when this category came up, I immediately went to it. Film follows Pilgrim, played by Michael Cera, as he tries to balance his shaky love life with the normal insecurities of his age, as well as his role of bassist in a garage rock band. When he is smitten by Ramona, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, he finds out that in order to have a relationship with her, he needs to eat her seven evil ex-boyfriends. Like the premise suggests, and most of you know, director Edgar Wright uses an energetic, fast-paced, video game-like approach to the story, with each face-off being like a new game level until Pilgrim reaches the big boss, Ramona's latest ex-boyfriend, Gideon, played by Jason Schwartzman. To be honest, I enjoyed the film, but wasn't as blown away as I was expecting based on the hype of some people. The film has a lot of fun dialogue, cool set pieces, the characters are entertaining, and the craft is on point, but it didn't get to me as much as I would have liked. Not sure if it's the fact that Pilgrim spends most of the film being an asshole, but at least I give the writer's credit for making him eventually acknowledge his faults. As it is, I felt more drawn and entertained by the supporting cast, from Kieran Culkin and Anna Kendrick to Ellen Wong or Chris Evans. I know there are a lot of people that love this, so don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it a lot, just not as much as I expected. A blockbuster film. If you remember, near the beginning of the month, we put the first Toy Story to our kids. Well, in the next weeks, they ended up seeing parts 2 and 3 as well. I only cocked the ending of part 3 and, of course, I got teary-eyed. So, anyway, continuing with our test run of Disney+, Plus, it was expected that we would end up with this one. The new installment follows the gang as they adapt to their new life with Bonnie, which includes Woody, voiced by Tom Hanks, who goes from being Andy's favorite to Bonnie's least favorite. When she builds a new toy, Forky, in her first day at school, Woody takes it upon himself to protect the newcomer who is now Bonnie's favorite. Maybe he does it to pass the torch or maybe he does it to win Bonnie's graces. The point is that, as is expected, they both end up lost in a road trip and end up meeting with Bo Peep, voiced by Annie Potts, who was donated years ago and now lives as a lost toy devoted to finding new owners to others like her. In my opinion, the Toy Story trilogy was as perfect as it could be, with the third part being one of the best and most emotional closures a franchise could get. So when a fourth installment was announced, I was definitely skeptic about it. Uh, it felt like a cash grab, going to a well once again, milking it, you name it. But I have to commend the filmmakers for finding a story that made sense and also ended up being both sweet and somewhat deep, at least for adults, with themes like rejection and fate or purpose being quite upfront. The kids, on the other hand, enjoy the thrills, the laughs and the adventures. Although most of the gang remain on the sideline, they all get their chances to shine, while the new characters are all fun. Was it necessary? Maybe not, but as far as I'm concerned, it is way better than it had any right to be. A film from Argentina Argentina celebrated its independence in July 9, so I wanted to see something from there, and I settled for 2001's La Cienega. 
The word Cienaga means swamp or marsh or a place of slow moving flow of water. The film is the debut of Argentine director Lucrecia Martel and it follows an upper middle class dysfunctional family as they spend time between the town and their decaying country house where a literal filthy swamp-like pool takes center stage while also symbolizing the decay and filth within most of the members of the family. The family is led by Mecha, played by Graciela Borges, the 50-something matriarch that seems to be disgusted and inconvenienced with everything and everyone while seeking refuge in alcohol and isolation. The other most prominent character is Mecha's teenage daughter, Mommy, played by Sofia Bertolotto, who seems to be struggling with her own sexuality and insecurities, as well as her apparent feelings for Isabel, played by Andrea Lopez, the house Indian servant. The film is very loose in its narrative with no clear plot structure, but rather moving slowly through a string of events surrounding the family. The constant in the story is the presence of that decay symbolizing the pool or swamp, but seen in the broken relationships between all the family members. Most of the focus lies on Mecha, her marriage is on the rocks, her health is deteriorating, her relationship with her adult son is strained, she mistrusts and mistreats her servants, and seems to be a constant focus of grievance, which she vocally harps about to anyone that gets close. Borges' performance is flawless in that you can't help but feel pity for her, while also being consistently annoyed by her demeanor. As the film progressed, I couldn't help but see some tinges of Roma in terms of certain aspects of the story, for example a middle upper class family dealing with deep personal issues while their servants have to deal with their own as well. But the goals of the stories couldn't be more different, where the former ended up being a story of empowerment, unity and support when the going gets tough. Here in La Cienega, the story is one of isolation and separation, and the morale of the story seems to be the need to escape from this place, from this family, the metaphorical filth or swamp, in order to break the dysfunctional cycle. This one is strongly recommended. It is the kind of film that creeps inside you and sticks with you. A film from the 1960s. I have intentions of watching or rewatching all of Disney's animated films, so now that we have Disney Plus, at least temporarily, I can work towards that goal. In my effort to try to combine this 60s category with something that the kids might enjoy, I chose 1967's The Jungle Book. The film follows Mowgli, voiced by Bruce Riderman, a young orphan raised by a pack of wolves in the jungle. When the life of the kid is threatened by the arrival of Sher Khan, voiced by George Sanders, noble panther Bagheera, voiced by Sebastian Cabot, and fun-loving bear Baloo, voiced by Phil Harris, decide to take him to a nearby quote-unquote man village for protection. I thought the film was fun, most of the characters are likable and the story is fairly straightforward and simple. Still, I was surprised at the many similarities I felt to The Lion King. My adult self has some slight issues with the accents of the voice cast, but whether it's intentional or accidental that the British character is the uptight one and the American one is the fun one on a film set in India, I tried to shock it up as a sign of the times. Overall, the film was enjoyable and short and the kids were mostly engaged. I wish they would have worked a bit on the ending, specifically the motivations for Mowgli to decide what to do in the end to be more than love at first sight, but it's a small quibble, I guess. A film with America in its title. 
As I was browsing my options for this category, I didn't have a lot to choose. I saw the American President from 1995 was available on Hulu and went for it. Funny thing is that five minutes into it, I kind of realized, I think I've seen this. A couple of minutes later, I was sure I had seen it probably back in the late 90s. I didn't remember that much though, so I didn't mind the rewatch. The film follows President Andrew Shepard, played by Michael Douglas, as he tries to balance his work with an upcoming election and a love relationship with lobbyist Sidney Ellen Waite, played by Annette Bening. In many ways, the film is pretty much an exaltation of the role of president, which feels kind of weird now considering who inhabits the White House. Uh, and it often threatens to fall victim to the excesses of melodrama, but it's mostly saved by the smart performances, a solid script by Aaron Sorkin, and the confident direction of Rob Reiner. It can fully escape its airs of rah-rah America, but it's not without its charms and backs it up with good characters. A musical. For this category, I saw 2019's Aladdin, which continues Disney's recent mission of turning all their entire classic animated filmography into live adaptations. Now, I'm not entirely against the idea of remakes as long as they can bring something new to the table, but if it's a mere face wash, like turning the film from hand-drawn animation to live action or CGI, it becomes nothing more than a curiosity and experiment. To this point, I hadn't seen a single one of these recent live action remakes primarily because I sense a certain pointlessness in them, which is augmented by the average or lukewarm reception that most of them have gotten. With Aladdin, the situation is more complicated because I'm a fan of the 1992 original. It's arguably my favorite animated film. It features a great soundtrack and an excellent voice cast anchored by the one and only Robin Williams. So obviously I wasn't looking forward to seeing this. However, when my wife suggested it one evening, I thought, okay, let's see if I can find something here. Like its predecessor, the film follows young street grad Aladdin, played by Mena Masood, who falls in love with Princess Jasmine, played by Naomi Scott, when he finds a wish-granting genie, played by Will Smith. Aladdin uses his powers to turn himself into a prince, knowing it could be the only way he can court the princess. However, his intentions get in the way of the plans of Jafar, played by Marwan Kensari, who has his eyes on the throne of Agrabah for his own evil purposes. The plot is pretty much identical to the original, with some set pieces and dialogues pretty much transposed from there to here, but in what the remake deviates is in its attempt to flesh out some of its other main characters like the Sultan, Jafar, and Jasmine herself. Considering that the rest is more or less the same, the degree to which these changes and additions succeed or fail is what makes or breaks this film. In that respect, the film has a double challenge. Number one, to keep fans of the original pleased while paying its respects to the source material, including the late Robin Williams. And number two, to try to polish some of the more problematic issues of the original in regards of gender and race, while also trying to bring something new and different to the table. For the most part, I think the film does a competent job with the first challenge. The basic plot was thrilling and fun already, the story was charming, the characters likable and the songs were catchy, so when they are transposed here almost identically, most of the time it works. It might not feel innovative and some things feel a bit rushed or forced, but if you're a fan of the original, the familiarity and nostalgia might help. Now, it is in the second challenge that the film stumbles a bit. The way that director and writer Guy Ritchie and co-writer John August try to flesh out Jasmine is commendable. There is a sense that the more prominent role of Jasmine might have been fueled by the Me Too movement, which makes it feel a bit forced, and the two new songs which are from her, although good, 
don't quite gel with the rest of the soundtrack. Despite that, these new changes make sense within the story and Scott embraces the role pretty well. Plus, she and Masood have a lot of chemistry, and although Masood is a bit spotty at times, he's solid and they both make for a charming couple. Unfortunately, the biggest flaw the film has is in the character Jafar. In following Jonathan Freeman's excellent voice performance, the remake had two options. Either find a scenery-shooing actor that can convey the same wickedness, or go with a more subtle actor while trying to flesh out Jafar's character and backstory. It seems that the writers and Kinsati were aiming more for the latter, however, I don't think his performance was that great, not only because he doesn't carry the necessary menace and dread, but also because the attempts to flesh out the character felt half-baked and undercut. I appreciate the attempts they made to give him a sort of backstory and how they tried to establish a certain parallelism with Aladdin, but I felt like they dropped that halfway and ultimately wasn't that successful. Finally, I couldn't write a review without addressing the role of the genie. I'm sure that the task of taking up such an iconic role must have been daunting to Smith. William's performance pretty much defined what would be the voice performance standard from there on and changed the whole landscape of animated films and their potential star power since. Despite the high stakes, Smith managed to find a balance between what is a respectful homage to William's genie, but without imitating him, while also trying to make the role his own. I'd still take Williams, but I still think Smith found a neat spot for his characterization. I also appreciated the addition of the character of Dahlia as a love interest and the way they bookended the whole story. If you're looking for a fun time with a bit of nostalgia, you might be okay, but if you go in looking for the blockbuster of your life, adjust your expectations accordingly. A film from Gus Van Son. Gosman Sand was born in July 24, so in honor of his birthday, I chose to watch his second film, 1989's Drugstore Cowboy. The film follows Bob, played by Matt Dillon, the leader of a crew of thieves and drug addicts who specialize in drugstores to fuel their vice, while avoiding being caught by a detective determined to capture them. Up until this point, my experience with Van Sant didn't extend beyond his mainstream efforts, so I was kind of looking forward to seeing something else from him. I was set for Paranoid Park, but they took it out of Hulu before I could get to it. Ended up setting for this one, but I don't regret it at all. The film is pretty good, taking us inside the lives of Bob and his crew, which includes his girlfriend Diane, played by Kelly Lynch. There are a couple of things that I felt needed a bit more space. For example, the detective's obsession with Bob or Bob's weird visions and superstitions, the hat thing, but more especially how his transition in the last act is executed. I feel that change could have been executed better. Regardless of that, Dylan is excellent in his performance and he pretty much carries the film all the way. A film set in France. Bastille Day was celebrated in July 14, which is why I wanted to see a film set in France. I ended up choosing 2019's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The film is set in 18th century France and follows Marianne, played by Noemi Merland, a young painter that is commissioned to paint the portrait of Heloise, played by Adèle Heinel, a wealthy young woman that's about to enter an arranged marriage. Despite this, Heloise and Marianne develop a bond and eventually an affair which they have to keep secret. I had heard and read good things about this, so when I saw it was available on Hulu, I ran with it. The film has all the right elements in its right place. Both lead performances are great, the direction of Celine Siama is impeccable, and the story is beautifully tragic or tragically beautiful. This is because of the way this forbidden relationship unfolds. 
there's an organic beauty to how the relationship of Heloise and Marianne evolves to how the casual looks change into more profound and intimate gazes or how a casual stroll in the beach becomes a casual chit-chat on the bed. Both Hanel and Merlant act the hell out of their roles and make you believe it, but it's also Siama's patience in letting scenes and moments breathe on camera as we see both characters inevitably drawn to each other as inevitably as they both will be pulled apart. It's a beautiful film. A film with the number 7 in its title. I only had this category left the day before we were hit by a storm here in Puerto Rico, so I thought to myself, I better get at least one short film under my belt before anything happens and we lose power. So I can say that I completed my challenge. I googled seven short film and this came up. This Norwegian short film is written and directed by James Morgan. It is set in what seems to be a remote fishing village where a man is facing some sort of village trial for a murder, leaving two people, a young woman related to the victim and an apparent village leader to carry the sentence. I was pleasantly surprised by almost every aspect of this. The performances were really good. The story, brief as it is, has emotional weight, but especially the direction I thought was beautiful. I only wish I could see a bit more of this, but I guess that's the point of a short film. Google it and see it. So that's all for the month of July. I finished them all with a loot of 17 features and one short film. My favorite first-time watches were La Cienega, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Knives Out, and Men of the West. As for Ali's favorite, there was nothing bad or horrible, but maybe Aladdin was the most unimpressive. Now that August has started, I wanted to share the categories I've chosen for the month. They are a film with the number 8 in its title, any film that starts with the letters O or P, a film from the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die list, whose ranking includes the number 8, a film from the 1970s, a romantic film, a film set in school, a film featuring a clown, a film from Switzerland, a film from John Huston, a film based on a book, a film with the word left in its title, a film set on a plane, a film with a primarily senior cast, a film featuring a volcano, and a film with the word dog in its title. This month I wanted to do something different. I already shared this on Twitter, but let's see if there's anybody interested. My birthday is in a couple of days, so instead of me choosing what to watch, I'm going to take recommendations from anybody for each category as a gift. Whichever film I'll see, whoever's recommendation, I will give you a shout out on the next episodes of my podcast. Maybe even read a snippet from your review or something you've written about the film. Preferable if recommendations are available on Netflix, Prime or Hulu. So if you want to play, look me up on Twitter, check out my pinned tweet and reply with any film recommendation you think might fill any of the criteria I've chosen for this month. Find me on Twitter at TIFCGT, T-H-I-E-F-C-G-T, or you can also find me on Letterboxd as TIFF12. I will also create a list for the month there. Look forward to your recommendations. Now it's time for... Useless Movie Trivia. Director Cecil B. DeMille is known for his biblical epics like Cleopatra or The King of Kings, but most notably his big budget blockbuster 1956 The Ten Commandments. Many people don't know that this film is a remake of a 1923 film also directed by DeMille. The director filmed this version in the California desert, and when filming ended, he dynamite and buried some of the large props like Sphinx and Pharaoh heads. 
These articles remain buried and maybe even forgotten until archaeologists dug them out in 2014. Can you imagine being an archaeologist unaware of this film and digging up an Egyptian sphinx in California? Guy would have gone crazy. So that's all for... Useless Movie Trivia. That's it. That's the end of episode 18 of Thief's Monthly Movie Loot. Thanks to all for listening. Remember to look me up on Twitter and shoot me your recommendations for August. Have a great week. Oh, all of you, come over here. Big group hug. Group hug. Oh. Do you mind if I kiss the monkey? Oh, hairball. Well, I can't do any more damage around this popsicle stand. I'm out of here. Bye, you two crazy lovebirds. Hey, rug man. Ciao. I'm history. No, I'm mythology. No, I don't care what I am.